Well, good morning, and what a great morning, hey? Fantastic morning, and congratulations to our 10 young people. Uh, such an honor to witness uh, your baptisms, and uh, I know for you it will be a very momentous landmark for you in your years ahead. Um, and it is, it's a momentous thing when we see particularly young people openly declaring their commitment to Christ and their desire, their decision to live for him. Wonderful thing for us to witness. And so I thought it'd be a good moment to read about another baptism, um, or the Jewish equivalent in our Bibles, uh, which was the circumcising, the naming of a baby. Again, committing a life to, to, to God. So would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. You'll find it on page 1027 if you've got a red Bible in your hand. If you haven't got a Bible, just hold up a hand. Sarah's there at the door, ready to help. But in this first chapter, Luke introduces us not just to uh, uh, the most famous couple of the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph, but to another couple. He introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're told both of them were upright and blameless in the sight of God, but they had no children, and they were both well along in years. Well along in years. It's quite a fun little phrase, isn't it? Or actually, I don't find it quite so fun because I think I'm falling into that category. But they were well along in years. But here we are, verse 57, with the birth of their son, John. And great celebrations, just like this morning, as the whole neighborhood comes together to celebrate his naming, his baptism. So let's read a bit of it from verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And the neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking all about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So... Here we are at a great family celebration, a huge party, which I'm sure you're going to have, uh, uh, that we've had already and you're going to continue during this day. A huge party as all the relatives and friends turn up for this baptism. And there's a terrific buzz. I mean, this is a miracle baby. This elderly couple, I don't know, they're 70, 80 years plus, who'd given up on ever having a family of their own, have just given birth to a healthy baby boy. And the news had spread like wildfire, and everyone wants to be in on the day. And everyone's already decided what the baby's going to be called. He should be named after his father, you know, Zach Jr. Surely, you know, there was no question about it. Finally, you know, finally Zechariah had a son to continue the family name, the family line. But to their surprise, Elizabeth, sweet little Elizabeth, says no. And, and no in the Greek is a very emphatic no. It's, no. it's not like no chance, no way. No, she said. He's to be called John. John? They say, but that's not in the family names. I mean, what is she thinking? Has she gone a bit hormonal? You know, 
actually, we had a similar experience when we announced to our families that we were going to call our son Maxwell. And they all looked at us, and I remember it wasn't a popular choice. And uh, uh, both sides said, said, Maxwell, Maxwell, is it in the other family names? You know, they were slightly put out. Well, this wasn't popular either. And they turned to Zechariah to try and get some sense out of him. But he also tells them his name is John. And interestingly, he didn't tell them he should be called John. Did you notice? He said his name is John. It's very clear it's already been decided, not by them, but by God. God had told Zechariah what to call him. And this is where it all began. This is where it all began nine months before, the biggest day of Zechariah's life. He'd been chosen to go into the Holy of Holies in the inner temple to light the incense. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. This was a great moment for him, a great moment in his career. And then what happens? An even greater thing. An angel appears to him. Just turn back to, to verse 11 in chapter 1. Just turn back over. Let me read. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man. And my wife is well along in years, well on in years. And there it comes again. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Now we need to realize that this was a momentous, a momentous thing that was going on here, not just for Zechariah, but for the whole history and the whole history of Israel. This is the first time God has spoken to his people in 400 years. 400 centuries of silence, and now God speaks, telling Zechariah that he's going to have a son who will bring many people back to God. And how does Zechariah respond? He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. How can I be sure of this? He says, I am old and my wife is well on in years. I hate that phrase. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't humility. This isn't a man saying, you know, how could God use me, little me? This is disbelief. And he should have known better. You know, he was a priest. He was a teacher of the law. He would have known his scriptures backwards. He should have known that God is a God who intervenes in history who comes and interferes in people's lives, who does extraordinary things like giving childless couples babies. I mean, this isn't the first time in Israel's history. There is a precedent for this. But Zechariah can't believe it. He seemed to find it easier to believe that God is a God who did amazing things back then, back in the Old Testament, but hard to believe that he still does it now. 
I mean, this God hadn't spoken to anyone for four centuries. Zechariah wasn't expecting to hear from him, and so he doubted. And because he doubted, he was struck dumb. Uh, But as he saw Elizabeth's belly grow and grow over the next nine months, he had an unmistakable visual aid before him that the Old Testament isn't just an old history book that tells us about a God who once was. No, no, it's a revelation. It's a declaration of the God who is alive and active today in both Zechariah's day and in our day. And as Zechariah obeys God by naming his son John, his speech returns, and he opens his mouth and speaks out the words he should have spoken nine months before when the angel gave him the the news. You know, we know that men are a little bit slow to learn, but, you know, nine months, nine months late, but he certainly gets it now. And his first words after nine months of enforced silence are extraordinary. And they're extraordinary because they're not the words you might expect from a man who's just been given one of the greatest gifts of his life, a son at the age of 70 plus. On this day of all days, you would have thought he'd be full of praise and gratitude for his boy, John. I mean, just think Lion King, you know, holding up his boy in front of the, in front of the, the, uh, the, the crowds. And yes, he's full of praise but it's praise for something and someone else. And it's not just praise, we're told. Just look, verse 67. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. You know, this isn't just a song. This is a prophecy. It's as though he's been reborn. He's come alive spiritually. No more doubting or disbelief now. No more doing things just by rote, just because he's a priest, just because he had to, just because he ought to. No, it's different now. He now knows for sure here is a God who intervenes, who interferes in people's lives. And he now not only has his own voice back, but he now can hear God's voice. You see, these are words from God himself, giving insight and foresight into things that only God could know about. So let's read a few of them. Over in verse 67, 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, he says, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. And what's so striking about these 12 verses is that Zechariah hardly mentions his baby. You know, his son John hardly gets a look in, apart from, I think it's verse 76 and 77. Someone else is utterly central. You see, Zechariah knows something, knows something is going on that's far more important than even his miracle birth. The focus can't be on John. 
You know, he's just the warm-up act, the one who gets everyone ready for the real thing. It's all about the one who's coming next. And even at his birth, John's father says, you know, it's not about my boy. <laughs> it's not about my boy. It's all about someone else. And Zechariah knows that his son's whole life is going to point to the greatest intervention of God into this world. This miracle child, John, is going to usher in the greatest rescue of all time. A fulfillment, you see, of a promise God gave long, long ago. And what we've got to remember is that this isn't some new idea. You know, it's not as though God suddenly, you know, thought, I think we'll make Christmas extra special this year. You know, what should we do? Oh, come on, come on. Let's blow the budget. I'll send my son. You know. No, Zechariah reminds us that this promise, this was all promised long ago. All God's promises and signs building up layer upon layer right through the Old Testament for this moment, this particular moment in time. The promise was given to Abraham 2,000 years ago, verse 73. To David, a promise that it was coming out of his line, verse 69. And through all the prophets, verse 70. You know, there are at least 15 references to the Old Testament in just these 12 verses. It's amazing. You see, the Old Testament is like a jigsaw puzzle. The individual pieces often don't make much sense on their own. But put together, they build up a picture of what God is doing but how he's going to rescue the world. And here we are with this latest prophet, John, a prophet of the Most High, we're told, at his baptism. You know, he's only eight days old. Jesus isn't even born yet. But did you notice, Zechariah speaks in the past tense about him. He says, God has come. God has rescued. God has brought salvation. You know, this is a very different Zechariah from nine months ago. Not a doubting one anymore, but one who's so certain of what God's going to do that he might as well speak about it in the past tense. You know, it's going to happen, whatever. So he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. You see, this is who God is. He's a God who visits his people. Right through history, he's come, he's intervened. And Zechariah now knows that as never before. And this is what God does. He redeems, he rescues. And Zechariah sees that clearly now. He sees that God's rescue is powerful because it involves a powerful savior. Did you notice verse 69? He's raised up a horn of salvation. Well, what we've got to think in our minds is the horn of a, of a massive rhino or a bull. You know, the great horns on their heads. Powerful instruments to be used against their enemies. I mean, forget gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We have a savior who will fight to save us, to rescue us from our, the hand of our enemies, and to rescue us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. And that's our prayer, isn't it, for these baptism candidates, that they will know, and they do know, they've been rescued from, and they've been rescued to. And I don't know if you picked up um, the Advent book that we've been advertising, John Piper's Advent Daily Readings, but they are terrific. And if there are a few left on the bookstore, go and get them. But in the first reading a couple of days ago, he reminded us that God is on a search and save mission. He's on a search and save mission. He's not aloof or passive or indecisive. He's never in maintenance mode, you know, just sort of coasting or drifting. 
He's always sending and pursuing and searching and saving. You see, we have a mighty Savior who will rescue us from our enemies. Not apparently with a sword in his hand, but with forgiveness and mercy. Just look on to verse 77. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, through the tender mercy of our God. Because the most dangerous enemies we face are not external ones. You know, it's not Islamic State. It's not North Korea. It's not even Donald Trump. You know, but they're internal ones. My sinful heart. My pride. My selfishness. My greed. My independence. Sin creates darkness in our lives. It brings isolation. It brings separation from God. And it brings with it a fear of death. And Zechariah sees this. He catches a glimpse of God's rescue plan. He sees that it's a rescue from and a rescue to. It's a rescue from sin and it's a rescue into life as the dawn rises. And you just sense the excitement in his voice rising up as he comes to the end of his prophecy and speaks of this rising sun that will come to us from heaven. Jesus the light of the world, the coming of God to earth will be like the sun rising up over the horizon, bringing light, you know, that knowledge of salvation, bringing warmth, that tender mercy of God that tells us we're loved, we're forgiven, we're known. Tenderness, did you know that's part of God's character? Bringing peace, guiding our feet, it says, into the paths of peace in our relationships, in our choices, in our attitudes. Uh, one of the most northerly towns in Sweden, called Karuna, Karuna, experiences darkness for a whole month over Christmas and New Year. Can you imagine it? For a whole month, the sun never emerges over the horizon. Now, just imagine seeing, uh, feeling the first rays of sun after all those days, all those weeks of darkness. For the first time in weeks, the sun peeps up over the horizon. And just imagine, you know, the light, the warmth, the, the excitement at seeing it. That's how Zechariah feels. A new day is dawning. The sun is rising. And the reason why Zechariah sings with such excitement is not because an elderly couple are being given a baby. He's filled with praise and anticipation because their son, John, has been chosen as the one to herald the coming of the Savior of the world. And admittedly, it was going to be 33 years before Jesus died on a cross and rescued us from our enemies. It was going to be 33 years before we could experience forgiveness and mercy. 33 years before he rose again and rescued us into a new life with the power to live in holiness and righteousness. You see, we look back on what Zechariah looked forward to. But we wait too, as he did. Because we wait for Jesus' return to come again, to come back and restore everything, to bring complete peace, not just peace internally in our hearts, but peace externally in our world. That's what will happen when Jesus comes again. But we too, you know, can have that same assurance that Zechariah found. We too actually can speak about the future in the past tense, have that sort of assurance, knowing that we have a saviour who is strong and mighty to save. Praise be.
to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. And because of God's tender mercy, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Now, how do we feel ourselves responding to those words? Do they excite us? Do they stir something up in us, that, that sense of hope and expectation? Or do they maybe leave us strangely cold, unmoved? Have they maybe come, become too familiar to us? John Piper in this book again said, Oh, how wrong, how sad, when we stand before great wonders and feel nothing. And I want us to pray that we are not a people who feel nothing at these words. Because I know to my shame, some Christmases I have felt slightly removed, slightly cold. It's all rather familiar. And I don't want to feel like that again. I want to be stirred up at the wonder and awesomeness of these words, of this message, of this news. So let's ask us, because God wants to give us that same sense of joy and expectation as he gave Zechariah when he first spoke these words. Not a detachment, but a sense of, yes, I'm part of this. I'm part of this good news. And let's ask him to fill our hearts again with the greatest wonder of all this Christmas. The arrival of Jesus into the world. Shall we do that? Let's stand, shall we? And we want to pray particularly for those 10 baptism candidates, those 10 young people. And Lord, we just pray for your particular filling of them this morning, today, and every day in their lives ahead. Every day that there would be that rising sense of there is so much more to come. Rising sense of assurance in their lives that they have a savior who came and showed them, had showed them that he loves them, who has rescued them and will continue to rescue them. And we commit them into your hands, Lord Jesus, and we commit ourselves into your hands too. And Lord, we, we, we confess that we so often do stand detached from your word, your good news. We so often allow it to become so familiar to us that we miss, miss the wonder and the awe. And Lord Jesus, we say we don't want to be a people who fail to be moved, fail to be stirred up, fail to have that fresh sense of expectation. And so we pray, as we prepare ourselves for this Christmas, that you would prepare our hearts and our hearts would be filled again. And when we sing your praise and when we read your good news, when we read the story of your son coming to this earth, it wouldn't just be familiar words that we've read a hundred times before, but it would strike that chord in our hearts so that we respond with a resounding, yes, yes, this is what you've done for me. This is who you are. You, my great rescuer. 
And Lord, we pray that you would make it personal. Make it personal to each one of us. And even though we may be a big crowd here this morning, he says to each one of us, I make it personal to you. I'm looking at you. I'm inviting you. I'm beckoning you. And Lord, we want to be a people who come, who come towards you as you came towards us. We invite you to come. Fill our hearts again, Lord. Our cold, detached hearts. Lord, warm them. Heat them up. Stir them up, we pray. Amen.